Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CIO Houseview monthly live stream. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023. I'm Anthony Pastore. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am joined here in the studio by my CIO colleagues, David Lepkowitz and Tom McLaughlin. And as always, we appreciate hearing from you, our audience. So if you'd like to speak to us and ask a question, there is a button right on your screen that says, ask a question. It's a, a red button right there next to the video. So you can open that right now and you can engage with us. And a little bit later during our stream, live stream, we will open it up to Q&A. So we really appreciate hearing from you. Plus, I have a lot of questions already written up for uh, the two gentlemen sitting to my left. So let's get started. Uh, Tom, good to have you here in the studio. Uh, August has certainly turned out to be a little bit of a volatile month for fixed income. We're all watching what's happening with with rates from obviously starting with where the Fed is going. We'll get to that in a minute, but also just looking at treasuries. Um, and we're about four and a quarter right now on the 10-year uh, the treasury. What's happening and what do you think we're going to be looking at as we head towards the end of the year? Words, what's going on? What's going okay. on? That's a good way to start it, right? <laughs> well, I think we're living in an era of mixed messages. Uh, we saw this morning jobless claims basically were lower than expected. But we also saw the Fed come out with the Beige Book, which suggests that the consumer is beginning to retract a little bit, with the exception of travel and leisure. So you're getting these kind of mixed messages coming in. Uh, I, I get asked a lot about you know, what's happened over the course of the last two or three months with Treasury yields. Um, and they've, they've risen unexpectedly, higher than, it, well, higher than anticipated. Uh, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, we actually had two of the most important buyers of Treasuries overseas pull back a bit. Uh, particularly in the case of China, which has actually reduced its treasury holdings for uh, six consecutive months, and is at a level right now which is as low as it was probably 10 years ago. So, and to some degree, that's designed to basically support their currency. Uh, the, the consumer has been probably more resilient than anticipated. And part of that, I think, is because uh, with mortgage rates so low until the last year and a half, we actually had a lot of people lock into fixed rate mortgages. So monetary policy transmission mechanism wasn't as efficient because it didn't necessarily hit the consumer as quickly in variable mortgages because people locked in at lower rates. Right. Um, so, uh, the, and I think probably the last issue is the surge in expectations of new issues. We actually saw the Treasury uh, change their forecast for how much additional borrowing they were going to need from $600 billion to additional trillion dollars in a quarter. And that kind of put people back. One final point is that uh, I think people are starting to listen to what the chair, that's uh, Fed Chair Powell, is actually saying. For, and, and David and I have talked about this in the past, for the past year and a half, Powell has been basically saying he's not prepared to make the same mistake that he viewed Volcker made in 1980 mm -hmm. by pulling his foot off the brake too soon. And I think uh, the market has finally kind of got caught up to that message which says, you know, we're not expecting the Fed to basically pivot very quickly. And remember, a pause is not a pivot. And the average amount of time it takes over the course of a 50-year history for the pause to turn into a pivot is about eight or nine months. So when you get to the point where the Fed is actually suggesting that they're done, and they'll do it in Fed speak, of course, it won't be that transparent. <laughs> when they do it in Fed speak and they say, okay, we're gonna take a pause, we're probably gonna see how it goes, that might be an indication, okay, they might be done. When that happens, you still have almost three quarters of a year before you can actually see a change. Mm -hmm. So right now we're gonna look very closely at the CPI print, which is gonna come out uh, next week. Next week. When it comes out, uh, we expect it probably to be a bit higher, just on the basis of energy costs. Uh, and so we could see uh, the 10-year yield rise a little bit further. Longer term, we still think it's going to fall back. 
but in the in that short instance over the course of the next four to six weeks it could rise a bit further. Which is going to be much to the happiness of people who are looking to buy a home who haven't gotten into that low rate yet but are seeing these massively high it'll be interest little, rates. Yes absolutely it'll, be, it'll take some time to get back. Yeah and even looking at uh, mortgage applications last week they were they fell by 2.9 percent but the previous week it was up 2.3 percent it's just yep. but you know that's also summer season into fall so there's a lot that goes into those numbers as well but even looking at jobs numbers the unemployment rate actually rose a little bit versus uh what it was the month the, uh, the month prior. And a lot of has to do with the labor force participation rate as well. Exactly. Right? I mean, that has, a, has a, a kind of a bigger impact than people realize. Yeah. Such More people big, are looking for work. Yeah, you know, yeah. Effectively, so it changes the number. That's exactly right, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a big picture. You have to kind of look at it and then have to drill down into the specifics. So, David, let's let's move over to the equity side. Uh, you and I have sat at this table a few times in the last few months, so I don't think it's a surprise to any of our regular audience members that rec equities have rallied and continued to rally. They rallied through August. Um, you know, tech, of course, still continuing to lead the charge. What, what's your outlook from here, and do you think that this rally can continue? Yeah, so I, I think it's helpful to, to, to sort of set the stage, is, is take a look back at what has been driving this rally so far this year. And I would say at a very high level, Anthony, what we've seen, and, and Tom alluded to this, the economic growth has been better than expected. And at the same time, we've seen inflation coming down. Um, that's a pretty good backdrop for, for equities, especially considering that valuations were, were, were you know, on the lower side mm -hmm. at the beginning of the year. Sentiment was pretty poor. Everyone was, was very cautious, you know, worried about a recession, and then throw on top of that AI enthusiasm and, and stuff like that. So I think that explains you know, why we've seen the rally we have. Now, the question is, obviously, what, what about going forward? I, I think the backdrop becomes a little bit less favorable. You know, we, as Tom just mentioned, we do think economic growth does slow down a little bit. It's been running above trend. It probably comes a little bit below trend uh, in, the, in the quarters ahead. Plus, I think a lot of the gains or the improvements we've seen in inflation, I, I would say the, the low-hanging fruit has been picked on that. Uh, and the, the, the improvements in inflation, I think, are going to be a lot more incremental going forward. Layer on top of that, valuations are now higher. Positioning is more right size. So, you know, we think it's, we're not bearish. We, we think it's more of a range-bound market uh, through the end of the year and maybe some upside, some, a little bit of upside as we go into 2024. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I would say the market can, can kind of hold these gains, uh, but we think the upside is, you know, probably not. Certainly, we've, we've passed most of the, mm -hmm. the best part of the rally is probably behind so us. So maybe not, yeah, so you're saying not at the rate that we've been experiencing for a few months now. Yeah, just to put a you know put numbers around it. I mean, our our, our December price target on the S and P 500, 4,500. That's basically where we are. Mm -hmm. um, and for June of next year, it's at 47. So that's about four or five percent higher than where we are. Right. Great. Uh, and let me stay with you, David. And, and Tom, feel free to jump in here. You know, we go back to the Fed all the time when we talk about the recession that never happened, mm -hmm. um, because everybody, you know, including us and everyone on the street, has been saying, you know, that we're due for a recession. Obviously, different magnitudes were what the consensus was. About how deep that recession would be, do we still think there won't be a recession, or do we expect to maybe see one in the in the future? So, uh, you know, our, our call is that we will not have a recession. Mm -hmm. But as I said, I, uh, what we do think that we'll see a, a bit of a slowdown in economic growth, um, and for you know a number of reasons. You know, first you've got uh, first interest rates are high, um, and that that will have uh, that will have an impact on uh, anyone who has debt outstanding. Um, uh, consumers have less excess savings now than they did certainly a year ago. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, a lot of that excess savings is, is probably nearly gone, if not totally gone at this point. 
Um, uh, and, uh, you know, but, but on the flip side, I mean, consumer balance sheets are in pretty good shape. Business balance sheets are in good shape. Uh, real wages are rising. There's still a decent amount of excess demand for labor. So, you know, as we put it all together, we think the U.S. economy can avoid a recession. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's important to define terms here. When we say recession, you know, I, I think the most important metric to look at is the unemployment rate. Right. So we don't think the unemployment rate is going to move up materially for the wrong reasons. You know, Tom was talking about the unemployment rate moved up. I would almost say for like a good reason. We had more people coming into the labor force. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so we don't think it's going to move up materially for the wrong reasons. Um, but look, I mean, you know, it, we have to acknowledge that it's still a it's a it's a tricky environment to navigate because the Fed has been so aggressive and and so we're we're monitoring things very closely. Yeah, and, and one of the other you know things we have to consider is that federal fiscal stimulus, which David mentioned, that's unprecedented in terms of the size and the scope of it. So uh, to some degree, that actually has eased the, the 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 monetary policy constraints that basically the Fed was imposing. Now it is running out. We're seeing the household savings rate dissipate. So we are coming to the point of inflection where we we could see this slow down quite a bit. Not a recession necessarily, but it's it should slow down. And it seems like that would be more of a natural progression of where the economy's headed. A, a natural slowdown, not one that's caused by some outside force. If we really want to get inflation closer to the Fed's target, the Fed themselves have been saying we probably need to see some subtrend growth for mm -hmm. some period of time. So in some sense, the Fed is sort of aiming for this as well. Obviously, they don't want us to tip into recession, but, but it, it does look like subtrend growth is, is looking likely. Great. Um, Tom, one of the things that, that uh, is starting to permeate a little bit is the conversation around government shutdowns. It's not like we haven't been here before. And I've had many conversations with you about past government shutdowns. Um, so the fiscal year for the government ends on September 30th, right at the end of the month. Congress is, you know, kind of mired in, you know, bipartisan disagreements. So is the government shutdown something that we can expect to be close to seeing happen, happening at all? What's, what are your thoughts here? So the, the odds of a uh, shutdown at some point during the fourth quarter are reasonably high. Mm -hmm. Whether it happens on the 1st of October or at some later date is an open question. Our colleagues in the UBS Office of Public Policy suggest that it's probably not going to happen right at the beginning of the fiscal year and that a continuing resolution is more likely than not. It's worth mentioning, of course, that there are 30 members in the GOP conference in the House that do not want to basically execute a, a, a continuing resolution to keep the government open at the start of the fiscal year. But most of uh, the Senate, both parties, uh, and certainly the Democrats in the House would prefer to do a continuing resolution, which is why this, the timing of the CR is not, not known with any precision. One important fact, though, is uh, that in prior instances, and David and I uh, looked into this with some, um, some precision over the course of, I guess, going back to 1976, mm -hmm. Um, was that the market implications are limited. Unlike a debt ceiling uh, default, which posed an existential risk to the financial markets, closing the government is generally tolerated uh, by, the, by the business community. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, including the fact that there's an expectation that whichever party is blamed for the shutdown, and both have been in the past, mm -hmm. but whichever party is blamed for the shutdown basically pays for it in the next election. So the expectation is that if you really go ahead and do this, it's not going to be long-lived, and you're going to have to basically capitulate at some point to keep the government open at, at the point in time where it begins to affect the daily lives of Americans. But the market, even if it reacts in the short term, it tends to rebound again over the course of succeeding weeks. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, it's going to be kind of an exciting time to watch type Washington, <laughs> but it's probably not something that we have to worry about like we did in terms of the debt ceiling. Right. And, and, and as we're getting into uh, a, a probably a fairly active presidential election cycle, which has already sort of kicked off, it but sort of um, has kind yeah, of kicked off, kind already, of. But yeah. it'll be in earnest, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of conversations on television related to a potential government shutdown and who's blaming who. So we can all expect that as we usually do. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about the election in a little bit, even though it's early. But uh, David, I wanted to kind of pivot again to you. We already talked about the broader equity markets, but specifically with tech stocks and growth stocks, which we all know have outperformed. Do you think that can continue specifically when you look at those different those two groups? So I think it's important to recognize a couple things. <laughs> tech stocks <laughs> and, and growth stocks, they're they're pretty expensive mm -hmm. from a historical perspective. In, in fact, you know, looking back through history, you, you really don't see this kind of valuation spread hardly ever. You have to go you know, back to the tech bubble, or there was a brief period in 2021 when we saw uh, growth valuations uh, as wide as they are now versus value. So we have to recognize that. Look, right now, there's a lot of, it's a pretty good earnings growth environment for many of these companies. Um, you know, people have talked about the Magnificent Seven. These are the seven largest growth companies in the market. They're putting up the earnings. Uh, you know, so collectively, those companies are growing, are expected to grow earnings over 20% over the next 12 months. Now, that's not going to persist. That is also that's going to slow. So, so you know, it's hard for us to see material outperformance from from tech and growth companies. The other thing I would bear in mind is that. We've seen such underperformance of value stocks. And what we did is we went back and looked at history. When value stocks have underperformed by such a large degree in a relatively short amount of time, uh, what happens over the next one to two years? And the, the answer is that there's a very high probability that value will outperform over a one to two year horizon. So, uh, so our, our, our feeling is you don't really want to be chasing the growth stocks here. Um, we may not see that significant value outperformance. It may take some more time for that to unfold, uh, but just be cognizant of the high valuations um, and, and be prepared at some point for those stocks to underperform in a more material way. Are there you know, opportunities right now in small and mid cap, in your opinion? I mean, so look, the, be the best time for small and mid is, is really when you're coming out of a recession. Um, so small and mid are really cheap, and, and in fact, you know, I, I think if you have a longer-term perspective, that's one of the more interesting places to be. Um, you know, U.S. large caps will probably generate a, a return, annualized return over the next decade. You know, maybe in the five to seven percent range, which is which is lower than normal. Usually, it's more like nine, ten. Uh, just given how cheap small and mid are, you can probably do low double digits annually in small and mid. So from a, from a longer-term perspective, it's a pretty interesting place to be. But you know, realistically, late cycle, we're still, we're, we are late in the economic cycle. We have a low unemployment rate. We've got an inverted yield curve. That doesn't tend to be the best time for relative outperformance of, of small and mid-caps. Great. Thank you, David. I want to pause for one second. We did get an, uh, an audience a question in, and Tom is kind of piggybacks a little bit on what we were talking about. And the question says, government deficit spending in 2023 was huge. Will, uh, with much smaller deficit spending in 2024, how might this impact the market? Well, from the perspective of, we're looking at the question over here on the left, I yeah. should go back and look at you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, from the perspective of the deficit spending, that was basically the federal fiscal stimulus that we talked about before. And that has actually been one of the things that I think has basically softened this notion of we haven't tipped into recession. It looks like we may not do so. And I think the federal fiscal stimulus had a lot to do with that. I think that has begun to taper off. Um, but here's something to remember. When we talk about some of these, like the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, mm -hmm. the ability to go ahead and actually spend that money is actually going to happen over the next two or three years. It didn't all get spent in the last year. So to some degree, there's this lag effect. And the, the, uh, the expenditures to the federal government for both of those uh, pieces of legislation will probably continue for the next three or four years, albeit at different levels. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for the question, audience. And remember, if you'd like to send in a question, click the Ask a Question button right on the website. Tom, can we talk about municipal bonds? Love to. I know. It's one of your passion is, projects yeah, here. So, <laughs> so, I mean, they're pretty expensive right now where, you know, considering, you know, historically where we've been with muni bonds. What's, what's the outlook for munis for the rest of the year? So, indeed, you were right. They, they were, they've been pretty expensive through most of the year. Uh, over the course of, say, the, just the last two weeks, they've cheapened up a bit. Mm -hmm. So they're, uh, they're looking a little bit more attractive now than they did, say, a month ago. Uh, total return year-to-date is 1.6%. It's nothing to, you know, yell from the rooftops about. Uh, but on the other hand, we know that most of our clients are buying municipal bonds for the tax-exempt income, right? And so we have a positive return year-to-date. Um, it has weakened over the course of the last two or three weeks, but a lot of that had to do with seasonality. The municipal bond market op uh, operates in a very seasonal pattern. And what we saw in June and July were a lot of uh, reinvestment of interest payments that were coming due or bonds that were being called. That kind of um, dissipated about the middle of August. And from about the middle of August forward, over the course of the last two or three weeks, uh, we saw it cheapen up a bit. So the advantage here is that the entry point is going to get better over the course of the next four to six weeks. We're going to see uh, more paper coming into the market because there's also a seasonal uh, approach to this where state and local governments tend to issue municipal bonds after Labor Day, before Thanksgiving, and they crowd the calendar. Um, so you're going to see more paper coming out and you're going to have more choices. Uh, and going forward, that should help if you're going to basically reinvest or invest new capital into the market. Uh, the expectation going forward is that municipals will improve. And if you look, if you're sitting in a high-tax state like New York or California, where we are on an A-rated bond is close to 8% on mm. a taxable equivalent yield So it's on a, on a current basis. So it's, it's actually going to be more attractive here in the next eight weeks. Right. And on, on the flip side of that, you know, we, we know that we've had some uh, two fairly big disasters, starting yeah. with uh, most recently Hurricane Idalia, which hit Florida on the West Coast pretty significantly, but also those horrific and disastrous Maui wildfires in Lahaina. I mean, and when you think about, obviously, not talking about the human toll, but on the investment side, could those affect munis in any way? Uh, so obviously, it was heartbreaking what we saw in both of those instances. From, a, from an investment perspective, uh, the good news here is that federal disaster assistance is usually very forthcoming very quickly. And when we actually move into a new fiscal year, FEMA will go ahead, even if there's no money appropriated for FEMA for these disasters, what they tend to do is they repurpose, as long as we have a continuing resolution, additional funds uh, that were for long-term resiliency purposes mm -hmm. that they were funding will go to disaster relief. So the federal government will provide, there's no question in my mind, they will provide the federal relief, whether it be immediately over the course of the next couple of weeks. Uh, interestingly enough, there's been a lot of academic research on this, and what it suggests is that 
the impact on general obligation bonds of a county, for example, that got hit by a, a natural disaster is negligible. In other words, the value of the bond doesn't change very much. In the case of a revenue bond, which might be secured just by sales taxes mm -hmm. from a county that gets hit, and of course there's less retail activity, it does get hit a bit. It's about half a point, and it, it peaks out around 10 weeks after the event, and then gradually returns. So effectively, if you're holding a general obligation bond, no real effect. If you're holding a revenue bond, which is secured by a much a very defined revenue stream, you might see an impact uh, in Hawaii or in, in, in the Big Bend area of Florida, but that's likely to peak out within a pace of a two and a half months, and then the valuation should gradually come back to where the rest of the market is. Great, thank you, Tom. Um, still getting a, a lot of uh, decent audience questions here. Um, David, we talk about this every once in a while, sort of the outlook on the energy markets. And when I'm not talking maybe from a commodities perspective. Certainly, we don't have a commodities expert in the room, but even just from the equity side, sure. what are your thoughts there on the particular side of the market? Yeah. So we've been pretty constructive on oil prices. Um, we've had a longstanding call that we would see oil prices move up, primarily related to the fact that OPEC and its allies are taking so much supply off the market. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, we thought demand would be relatively resilient. Uh, that is now starting to play out. Um, so we, uh, with the, on the equity side, we, we added positions in the energy sector in middle of June um, when oil prices were around $70 a barrel. You know, they're now approaching 90 and we think there's a little bit more upside in, in terms of uh, the oil price. We don't think it's fully appreciated sort of how tight the oil markets currently are. Um, but look, I, I think the trade, you know, is, is uh, we're, we're getting a little bit closer to the end of the trade. Um, so we also want to be cognizant of that. But right now, I still think that there's, there's some more upside in and outperformance potential within, within the energy space. And again, it's driven by... Uh, our view that we think oil prices can continue to move a little bit higher. I would also point out that the oil companies have really transformed themselves from a balance sheet perspective, from a cash flow perspective, from a return of capital perspective. Um, the balance sheets are in very good shape. They've really cleaned them up. Uh, they're, re they're generating huge amounts of cash. They've become much more disciplined about deploying capital uh, into new, new projects. So, uh, so we're also seeing them return a lot of cash to shareholders. So it's a very different sector than it was, say, 10 years ago. Uh, and I think that's also why you're seeing the, the interest and part of why we're interested in it. Right, exactly. Thank you, David. And just kind of broadening it out a little bit, and Tom, I'll ask this of you in a, in a moment. In, in general, within the equity space, what are you recommending to investors uh, what, that we haven't already spoken about? Yep. So we talked about energy. Um, from a sector perspective, the other area that a couple of other areas that we like are industrials. Um, so industrials is, is, is pretty heterogeneous. There's a lot of different end markets in there. Um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting things going on. You've got uh, a lot of onshoring, reshoring happening. There's the Inflation Reduction Act that, that Tom was talking about, which is spurring some, uh, some pretty sharp investment uh, programs. Uh, the infrastructure spending, the CHIPS Act. So there's a lot of government programs, and we're actually seeing a massive surge in manufacturing capital spending. Uh, and th so that's really benefiting a, a lot of the industrial companies. At the same time, uh, aerospace is an important end market as well. Uh, everyone knows what's going on with travel, and there's a lot. There's going to be a lot of aftermarket and maintenance and repair that's going to be needed on those those aircraft. Uh, and and look, defense spending. We're in a new paradigm for defense spending, certainly relative to the last you know, couple few years ago. 
and, and the defense companies are a big portion of, of industrials. So we think there's a, a number of interesting things going on within industrials. That's a place to be, to be looking. And look, but you know, defensives have really gotten hit uh, on a relative basis over the last, you know, really last couple months. And so, you, so we think there's some opportunities there as well. And, and consumer staples is the, the place that, that we, we think is the, the, one of the better defensives. But you know, the other point is that, look, we talked about some uncertainty in the economy and the outlook and maybe a slowdown. You want to have some defensive ballast in the portfolio. So you know, rounding out our sector views, it's, it's energy industrials, consumer staples uh, as, our, as our most preferred. We also like equal weighted S&P 500. Uh, just to to play the notion that it's a lot cheaper than 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 the market cap uh, weighted version, we think there'll be a little bit broadening out of, of the market of the market gains. Great, thank you, David. Tom, um, let me ask the same question of you, and then there's another audience question there. Uh, where, what are you recommending right now within the fixed income space? So uh, two things stand out. Uh, first is we talked a bit about municipals, but where you are in the municipal curve actually makes a difference. Uh, right now, I would uh, focus on the area of 10 years and longer. Uh, so if you're in the A-rated space in municipals, um, you're out beyond ten, uh, 20 years, so you want to stay beyond 10 years. Once you get out beyond 20 years in the A-rated space, you're approaching 100% of treasuries. So you're effectively getting your tax exemption for free. Uh, so it's going to drive taxable equivalent yields that are very, very attractive. The key, however, is to balance when you look at an entire fixed income portfolio, and this has been true for about six months now, or even a little bit longer, is this balance between short-term treasuries, long-term munis. That, that's your effective cross-asset barbell for your fixed income part of your portfolio, where if you're inside, you know, two years and inside, and on, you're getting the benefit of the inverted yield curve, longer term, because you want some of that ballast, that's the kind of the term we use also in terms of your fixed income portfolio, you're going to basically have that available to you, uh, tax exemption, mm -hmm. for free on the long end. The other thing I've mentioned is uh, preferreds. Uh, which had a really strong first two months and then has dissipated over time. Uh, but there are opportunities out there that are really attractive. I mean, when you look at fixed uh, rate reset spreads with a, with a big back end that are callable on 24 and 25, there are, there are instances out there where preferreds are trading at 85 to 90 cents in the dollar, and they could get called, and you're talking about double-digit returns in the space of 12 months. So it's not everywhere, but those, those examples do exist. Yeah. And we actually have many of those listed in some of our publications. So it's worth uh, taking a look at. Yeah, nice pockets yeah. in there. Yeah. And, and an audience question came in, which I think lends itself to a follow-up here. And, and somebody's asking about sort of the short, the short end, you know, the shorter term paper. Uh, you're looking at two years, three year treasuries. Yeah. Are, they an, are there an opportunity here for that? Yeah, sure, there is. I mean, it's the, the, the issue that we're going to have to start dealing with is the reinvestment risk. Right? If you're really short, you're going to be in a position where at some point when rates begin to decline and the Fed pivots, and again, we talked a little bit about how long that may take, mm -hmm. but when it happens, those, that, that's going to basically raise your reinvestment risk in the short term. But if you go ahead and you're staying within one year, for example, you'll be having an ability to reinvest at the longer end of the curve when those longer yields begin to decline. Again, it may not happen over the course of the next four to six weeks. We still have some prints, CPI prints incoming, which could react the market and raise it above to where we are right now. But longer term, towards the very end of the year into the new year, those, we, we still believe those longer rates are going to begin to decline. Great. Thank you, Tom. Uh, David, a question came in about commercial real estate, which is not necessarily in, your, in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about here. But even when you look at the REIT market or you know, the equities that sit inside the real estate space, could this kind of continued higher you know, interest rate environment affect that over, you know, over time? Has it affected it? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. So, so I, I there's a couple of things I think are, are really worth highlighting. You know, 
when people talk about commercial real estate, I, I think sometimes there, there's a big focus on the office part of commercial real estate, mm -hmm. but, but commercial real estate is, is much larger than just office. Um, you know, you got multifamily in there, you have retail in there, uh, in, in, you have industrial, um, in the public markets, you've got wireless towers, data centers. So there's a, there's a very large variety of types of real estate. No question, office is going to, to have some difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, we're here in an office, and we've been coming into the office. Uh, Anthony, I know you've been here often. And, <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, you know, there's certainly, it's, we're not back to the full capacity that we were right. before the pandemic. Um, but let's, let's keep it in perspective. The value of office properties is only about 20% of the total value of commercial real estate. Um, and the banks, I mean, this is, a, this is now a very well-known issue, right? So the banks are reserving for it. Um, we've seen a markdown in the values of these properties. And in many cases, there's, there's probably going to have to be uh, restructurings done over time. So because it's not, because it is a limit, it's limited in terms of size and no one institution Certainly, no one large institution has outsized exposure to to this you know smaller part of the commercial real estate market. We don't think it's going to have a uh, you know meaningful impact on on the economy in terms of things like access to capital and, and stuff like that more broadly. That really shouldn't be affected by some of the problems that probably will continue in, in office. Right. I take for granted also that we work in New York City, which kind of has picked up in activity more than maybe some other urban areas, yeah. but I know that there are a lot of cities that are still kind of trying to get people into at least go to the office more yeah. than, you know, once sure. a week yep. or at all. Thank you, David. Tom, before we wrap, I have to ask you, and this is maybe a little bit of a segue into the fall, is about the upcoming and imminent uh, presidential election cycle for 2024. I can, I can run, but I can't escape. Is that what you're <laughs> The door is locked. You can't get out until you finish the... No, in all seriousness, I know it's very, very early. It is early. What, and we don't know a lot, but what do we know today that might kind of usher us into that crazy cycle that we're about to get into? Yeah, a couple of things. Obviously, um, the, uh, the two lead candidates, obviously, are the former president, Donald Trump, and the current president, Joe Biden. Both have uh, very low uh, favorability ratings. They are net negative in both cases. Um, they both have uh, challenges. Obviously, uh, former President Trump has got his legal issues. Uh, the current president actually is, is reasonably physically frail. Uh, people are concerned about um, uh, the future and his possible health. So these are concerns that keep coming up in polls that are basically taken of American voters. A mm -hmm. um, couple things to remember is that um, Iowa is not determinative, and uh, it actually has a reasonably, well, not a, not a very good, I should say reasonably bad, um, uh, predictive power as to who is going to get the nomination. Um, I do expect by the time we actually have the next Republican debate, we will basically be down to five or six individuals on stage. Once that happens, it gets interesting because mm -hmm. at that point, whatever opposition uh, may be present to the former president will basically coalesce around a few candidates. So I actually think it's going to be a fairly, um, even though at this point some of the polls suggest the former president is way ahead, and he is, I think it could tighten up here as the, as the year goes on. Whether or not uh, uh, President Biden decides to stay in the race, which is the current view at this point, mm -hmm. uh, we will probably have to see over the course of the next three or four months. Decisions have to happen by March, uh, because um, the, by early March, we're going to have Super Tuesday coming in, and it's going to basically lock down a lot of the delegate votes. Um, so between, I would expect between, uh, say, November and March, it's 
for the holiday season. We got that to look forward to. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving, uh -huh. right, Tom? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Thank you very much. And also, I would like to plug a little bit for you and the rest of the team uh, are beautifully done every cycle, election watch yeah. report and publication. I know that's going to be a busy one. The first, first publication one early, early October. October. Yep. So, so we'll be talking a lot about that over the course of the next months. It'll be the into first the of year. many, I think. Yes, I think it will. Yeah. So we'll be looking forward to that, and I would recommend our audience take a look for that as well. But anyway, we're out of time, gentlemen. Thank you much. It's always good to sit here with you, you, and thanks for your insights and sharing everything with our audience today, David and Tom. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Great, thank you. And thank you all for being here. Thank you for the questions. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to all of them that came in, so we will respond to you via email. So make sure you're checking out your email for that response. In the meantime, we also want to remind you that we have another monthly live stream coming up right here in the studio on uh, Thursday, October 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Don't forget, the CIO Live is the first Thursday of every single month. Plus, if you haven't had a chance to, you can take a look at the replays of the terrific series CIO hosted over the summer called The Summer of Artificial Intelligence. UBS.com forward slash Summer of AI is where all those replays are, are, are located. We just did a show yesterday that was about the sort of the business side of AI. Really interesting stuff. So take a look at those replays when you have a chance. And until then, in general, we'll keep you up to date about everything happening in CIO and UBS through our HouseView publications, alerts, and more. Plus, we've got lots of great multimedia available. You can check out more videos like our regular series, UBS Trending, as well as our podcasts and more. You can hear from all of our colleagues in CIO, including Tom and David, and uh, our best partners from around Wall Street that we get to work with every single day. And you can check those out at UBS.com forward slash views. And as always, we encourage you to continue this conversation with your UBS financial advisor. Until next time, have a great rest of your day, everybody. See you soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.